before you go, because it's mainly, we kind of had two sort of main demographics we're thinking about as we were coming up and brainstorming with this series. Um, and the first part, and the first group was kind of to the people that are physically going to be leaving our church in a couple of months. Not like literally leaving, but going off to college. So the seniors that are in high school now, before you go to college, before you leave kind of the bubble or the place you grew up in, your home church, here are some things we would like you to know about what it truly means to follow Jesus, what the faith that you're a part of is really all about, and what it looks like to live a life of faith. And the other side of the coin, the other group that we sort of had in mind as we were creating the series um, was for anyone that's at church or listening that's thinking of maybe leaving the faith, of leaving the church, leaving Jesus, leaving Christianity because of the hang-ups and the burdens and the questions and the doubts um, and the lifestyle that comes with being a Christian. So if you're in that space and you're thinking like, Ah, you have one foot in, one foot out. You're at church, but your heart's not really here. You're not really convicted. And you're considering um, leaving the faith or leaving Jesus. Here are some things we would like you to know, some questions we would like you to ask before you make that decision. And what we've been doing throughout the series is essentially breaking down the perspective of, as the Bible would call it, the world. Or simple terms, basically people outside of the faith. If you leave the faith, if you don't, if you choose not to follow Jesus or not be a part of the church or believe, what is the mainstream theology or the perspective or the philosophy that you're buying into? And we've kind of in broad terms described this as secularism. Secularism, the secular way of life. So when we talk about secularism, we're talking about in general uh, what those outside of the faith or those that don't follow Jesus believe in in sort of the mainstream culture of the world and in life. And in part one of this series, we started by asking a very fundamental question. And the question we asked was, who or what do you follow? Who or what do you follow? And the idea was, if you leave the faith, if you choose not to follow Jesus, um, the idea that a lot of people have and the alluring kind of attractive thought is, I can decide for myself who I want to be. I can follow myself and figure out life as I go. But the reality is, that's actually, that's a fairly naive thought to think that we're as autonomous or as independent to make our own life decisions completely um, unmanipulated by anything else. And so the idea that we asked ourselves, the question that we had was, if you choose not to follow Jesus, if you choose to leave the faith, if you choose to leave uh, Christianity behind, what is it that you're truly choosing to follow? And is it better and more loving, more accepting than Jesus? And in part two of our series, we went a little bit more in-depth into what it was that secularism offered or, or talked about. And one of the core aspects of secularism is this idea of unlimited freedom, that you can do whatever you want, however you want, you know, however you want, whenever you want. And one of the most attractive parts of that is that it promises unlimited freedom. And the question we asked ourselves in regards to that part was, what are you going to do with that unlimited freedom? And one of the things we've been doing throughout this series is taking a concept, taking a question, and sort of playing it out. All right, this concept of unlimited, unlimited freedom sounds awesome and amazing on paper. But if you play that out, if you live your life where that's the core value of your life, that you do you, whenever you want, however you want, whenever you want, what does that look like down the road? And the conclusions we came to in part two was that ultimately, unlimited freedom, where you're uninhibited by any commitments, any sort of sacrifice, any sort of um, going for others, leads to a place of isolation and a lack of meaning. That you do you often ends with you doing you by yourself. And that community and meaning necessarily need a certain level of commitment and sacrifice and, and giving in to one another. And last week, we continued exploring this concept of, of unlimited freedom. Um, and we talked about this idea of DIY theology, of a do-it-yourself or a build-your-own theology. And I think last week was particularly essential for those not just, in, not just that are thinking of leaving the faith, but those that are at church today, those that are in the faith, those that strive to follow Jesus 
um, and live out their faith, it's a very tempting thing to do. And the concept of DIY theology is that it's really easy to create your own theology, to create your own view of God, of the world, based on what you agree with, what you don't agree with, what makes you comfortable, or what makes you uncomfortable. The danger of, the, of DIY theology is that it creates the illusion of progress, the illusion that I'm following Jesus, the illusion that I'm, if you're secularism, the, the illusion that I'm creating a better society for everyone else, when in reality, the only person you're really serving, the only person you're really following is yourself because you have decided what is right and wrong. You have decided what is true and false based off what makes you comfortable and what you agree or don't agree with. Um, and really, the, the, the series as a whole is best... Um, makes the most sense when you listen to it as a progressive, as you listen to all of it at once. So uh, we see this every week, but we need to continue reiterating this. Um, all of our sermons, um, not just this series, but all the series we've preached in the past, are all online. You can look at them at our website, Rock Fellowship SDA, or just wherever you listen to podcasts, whatever platform you listen to them on. Um, they'll be on if you look up Rock Fellowship, all of our series, including parts one, two, and three of Before You Go are online. And part four on paper is, is our last kind of the conclusion that kind of wraps up all the thoughts of before you go. And in part four of our series, we're going to be answering a pretty, que- a pretty hefty question. Um, and the, the kind of core question that I have to start off this, this final part of before you go um, is this question. It's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty general question. And the question is, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of of life, um, and actually, I figured it out earlier this week. So I figured I might as well share it with you guys today. Um, and I'm so I'm glad you guys came out to church today. I'm sure you guys are glad too. Um, I'm going to be telling you guys what the true meaning of life is um, in today's message. But before we go into the grand reveal, I invite you guys to join me in a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for this privilege um, and the honor of being able to speak on your behalf to this church, Father. And I ask that the next words that I speak for the next few minutes, Father, it's Truly me hiding behind your cross, Lord, and being your vessel and your tool, God. And I ask that these words that I speak um, be through you and that anyone who hears these, Lord, soften our hearts, our minds, our ears, Lord. And and whoever needs to hear these, Lord, move in our lives here today, Father. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here in our presence, Father. Be among us, Father. Praising your son, Jesus' name. Amen. So the reason I ask that question, um, uh, what is the meaning of life, is that uh, you probably would get a different question or a different answer to that question depending on who it is that you ask. If you ask a Christian, like, what is the meaning of life? How do you find meaning in life? You'd probably get some version of um, to accept that Jesus as God came down to humanity, save us from sin by giving his life. And understanding that truth leads you to strive to follow Jesus, right, by loving God and by loving others. You know, maybe a little variances here and there. Some people might leave some stuff out. But the general core principle, if you're a believer, if you're in the faith, if you go to church, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, is that you'll get some version of that answer, right? That's where I get the meaning of life from. That's where I find meaning in life. If you ask someone uh, that from a secular worldview that isn't religious, that is irreligious and doesn't believe I'm in a God, you probably get some version of this answer. Again, there's probably variances, but in general, some version of, well, the meaning of life is just to enjoy life, to make the most out of life that we have by making good memories, having fun, enjoying what life has to offer, while we can, because at the end of the day, it's ephemeral and it's not lasting. So, you know, kind of like a YOLO mentality, enjoy it while you can. And again, I am kind of pro- uh, painting in broad strokes, but you probably more or less will get some variation of these two answers. Um, and so the two different people have contrasting worldviews, offering two completely different answers to what the meaning of life is, right? If you have a Christian, someone that believes you get some version of, you find meaning in life by understanding your identity in Christ by what he's done and striving to follow him. 
On the other side, if you ask someone that isn't a believer, you probably get some version of, well, it's to enjoy life as much as possible while we can. Life is short. Make the most out of it. Live life to the fullest. Make good memories and enjoy yourself. The problem is that oftentimes these two worldviews have been presented as a sort of mutually exclusive, right? Because they're offered from people with two separate and contrasting worldviews, right? So because of that, the answers that are given are often presented as, well, it's either or, right? You can either follow Jesus and, you know, find your identity in him, or you can enjoy life and enjoy the pleasures of life and have fun. And the illustration of this that I find, and maybe some of you guys can relate to this, but for me growing up, um, I grew up in the church. I grew up observing Sabbath and attending church um, in the faith. Um, and I get this, at this point, I can probably only speak from my own experiences of what Sabbath was like. But maybe, I think it's pretty safe to assume that some of you guys that have grew up in the church can to some extent relate to what I'm going to share. Um, so I grew up in the church. I grew up attending Sabbath. My parents were um, very uh, involved at church, very involved. My mom was like the leader of the children's ministry. My dad was a deacon. He did AV. and He's an elder now. So their church was very much a big part of our lives. So from a young age, going to church on Friday nights, going to church on Saturday was a very normal part of, that was just my schedule. On Saturdays, that's what we did. Um, but to say that church or Sabbath was fun or enjoyable would be a little bit of a stretch. I didn't hate church. I didn't hate Sabbath. I didn't really dislike it. But to say that I truly enjoyed it um, may have been a little bit of, of a stretch, um, at least when I was younger. So specifically, I'm talking when I was in, like, the children's ministry, right? So, like, elementary school, like, fifth grade and younger, um, a lot of Sabbath boiled down to, like, just do's and don'ts. Here's what you do do on Sabbath. You go to church, you dress up, um, you help out where you can when you're at church, you eat all your potluck food, and then, you know, we go home, right? Here's what you don't do on Sabbath. No computer, no movies, no TV shows. Essentially, it was, like, no electronics until the sun goes down. And for me, especially when I was in, like, children's ministry, where I was too young to join the youth for, like, the youth activities and go to the game nights and the gym nights and the movie nights, a lot of Sabbath felt like, you know, I was told growing up, like, Sabbath is a day of rest. It's a day of rest, and you observe it, and you, you know, you, you, know, you worship God on that day. What it really felt like to me was, like, Sabbath seems like it's a day of rest from fun. And a lot of it was just I was just waiting for, like, the sun to go down. And that's why, like, I loved winters because the sun sets a little bit earlier in the winter. And I distinctly remember there was this one Sabbath. And, again, this wasn't often, but this is kind of, like, engraved into my memory where there was a particular Sabbath where I came home from church. And on this particular Sabbath, um, my parents didn't have, you know, any big plans. Usually we'd either go to someone's house or someone would come over to our house. But they didn't have plans to stay. So myself, my parents, my sister, we all went home. And we all just took a nap. And that's the, I get that for some of you, like, that sounds amazing, right? Like, oh, some of you are like, that is, like, the ideal Sabbath for me. But I was in, like, third grade. And I was like, what? Like, mom, what do we do? And she's like, just go to sleep. And I was like, what? It's like 2 p.m. Like, what am I supposed to do? And she's like, you can read. I was like, oh, I can read, like, anything? And she's like, not anything. You can read your Bible. And I was like, I guess I'll just go to sleep then. And, like, I remember going to sleep and, like, I was like, oh, please, when I wake up, I really hope it's dark outside. So then, like, I can play games and stuff. And so a lot of Sabbath, at least after church for me, was I grew up this idea of, like, okay, I just, I just need to wait for this to end. I'm waiting this out. Um, and then I can have fun and enjoy my life and play my games and watch my YouTube videos. Um, and in a sense, I almost feel like it sort of seeped into kind of my overarching view of what it meant to live a life as a Christian, right? If Sabbath was this idea of ultimate rest and what it meant to worship God, and I don't know about you guys, but 
growing up, I heard one sermon about like, hey, like, what are we going to do in heaven? And to a certain age, I grew up believing like, oh, like, we're going to ride lions and stuff and like fly. And I heard a sermon where the pastor said, no, we're just going to worship God all the time. And I was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, do I still want to go, whoa, like, and I imagine like just sitting in a pew, like for eternity. And I was like, is that, whoa, I don't know that that's what I signed up for. And there was this, it wasn't explicitly stated, but the implied version of what it looked like to live out faith was like, hey man, faithful living, truly obeying God is like, you live a slightly muted lifestyle, right? You know, life is good, but like, don't enjoy it too much. And like fun, pleasure, excitement, that kind of stuff is inherently, it's not so good. You don't want too much of that um, because it's not good for you. And the expectation um, of those that maybe grew up in the church and you feel that way, right? And you're thinking of, you know, I got to get out of this. This is too conflicting for me. It's like, it's, it's restricting my life. I can't really live my life. The expectation is that leaving the church, leaving the faith will result in me living a much better life where I'm happier and I can enjoy life so much more. Like staying in the church is stifling my enjoyment, my pleasure, my comfort. It's not good for me. I'm unhappy. Whereas on the flip side, staying in the church is, is, is burdensome more than anything. It's unenjoyable and it's stifling. But the reality is, well, I could say that there are plenty of people living out their faith, um, fully enjoying life, that are generally very happy and would say that their life is good. Well, I could say that. Maybe a more convincing, um, albeit darker reality, is that outside of the church and really society as a whole, anxiety, depression, loneliness run rampant. People feel more isolated than ever. People feel more hopeless than ever. People feel lost and confused. Granted, this isn't something that just happens outside of the church. It happens within the church and really society at large. Um, but I think it goes to say that it's simply not true that leaving the church, leaving the faith, leaving Jesus will guarantee a happier, more fun, more enjoyable, more comfortable life. I'll, despite how you may have grown up and despite what you may have thought the church has taught you, the reality is you don't need to look very far to realize that outside of the faith, outside of the church, outside of the institution, the belief, the theology, the following Jesus, it's not all sunshine, rainbows, and butterflies. And not everyone is out there having a blast. So to go back to our first question then, what is the, what is the meaning? What is the meaning of life, right? For, for, for a Christian, it's some version of accepting Jesus as God and following Jesus, right? Pursuing Jesus, the life of Jesus. Um, and in secularism, it's some version of enjoying life as much as possible while you can, in a sense, a pursuit of pleasure. Um, and something we've done throughout this series is, we, is we've taken this concept, right? The concept of DIY theology, the concept of unlimited freedom, the concept of, you know, following someone other than Jesus. And we've kind of played it out, right? If this becomes a core principle in your life, 10, 15, 30, 40 years down the road, where does this take you? Where does this naturally lead? And I think for something like the pursuit of pleasure, it's especially important to map out where this can end. Because I would argue this is, a, this is probably the most hollow of the theologies that Paul talks about. And we've referenced uh, Corinthians, uh, Colossians 2.8 where it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual force of this world rather than on Christ. And so I was listening, I was watching this interview with this guy who's a social media influencer. Um, but he wasn't like a really young, like teenage social media influencer. He was, you know, a bit older, maybe like in his maybe 30s, 40s. So he had an insane amount of money. He had a lot of money, very wealthy. And he, essentially the lifestyle that he lived was one of like 
when you imagine Jesus talking, whatever, when you picture the, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, whatever you think the prodigal son did while he was away from home, that's like how this guy lives, I imagine, right? There's whatever he wants. He has the means to do whatever he wants. He doesn't have a nine to five. So he just lives life, right? Whatever he wants, whatever pleasures he wants, whatever he wants to do, he does, right? And so he was on this interview and he was talking about, you know, his lifestyle, right? Which especially on social media seems super alerting, has a huge following. Um, and one of the things he talked about was, yeah, I've realized that in life, you can't buy happiness, but you can buy pleasure. You can buy a lot of pleasure, and I've bought a lot of it. And he talked about the concept of, like, pleasure in his life. And this is what he said. He said before he had a lot of money, uh, he, he was in the military at one point, um, and as he was in the military, he talked about whenever I got the chance, uh, I could eat out. Uh, he said he would go to Outback. Outback Steakhouse was, like, his place. And he said when I go to Outback, eat a steak, get that blooming onion, it was like, I'm a, I was at a 10 out of 10. I was, a t I was like super happy. That was delicious. And like I was on cloud nine then, right? But now, fast forward a couple of years, several million dollars later, three private chefs. I've eaten at some of the greatest restaurants in the world. You can take me to any given city. And the most expensive steakhouse in the city, and I'll eat whatever the most expensive thing on that menu is, and I'm at like a seven or a six, right? I've had it all. I've had it all, and it's like it's not the same. And now, if I were to go to Outback, it's disgusting. I, I can't eat that anymore, right? And there's this, this concept, right? And I get that is, is a singular person and this is his personal experience, but there's this reality that there's something very elusive about the pursuit of pleasure that's so fleeting. It's like drinking a soda when you're super dehydrated, right? You drink it and it's cold and it's refreshing, but at the end of the day, you're not any more hydrated than you were before you had that. Now, I think it's important to, that I make a distinction here before we go further in the message. When I say the pursuit of pleasure, what I'm talking about is when pursuing pleasure is a core value in your life. When it's a fundamental part of what brings meaning into your life, this is the theology that I'm talking about. The issue comes, um, well, while pleasure and happiness and fun in and of itself isn't a sin or bad, it also isn't a measure of what is good and what is true either. And the issue comes when our pleasure, our fun, our enjoyment, and our comfort becomes the standard through which we define right and wrong, good and bad, true and false. But I don't think, and this is where the other side of the coin comes in, I don't think you can make the claim that the Bible teaches against enjoying life, appreciating the things in life that are pleasant and enjoyable and that bring joy. And the reason I make that claim is because of what the book of Ecclesiastes says. And so if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, it's one of the wisdom literature books in the Bible, and where most, most likely we think Solomon is, is the main teacher in that story. And if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, chances are the word that comes to mind, the phrase or the concept that comes to mind is the word meaningless. It's, it's after the first verse where that introduces the teacher, that's the opening line. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? And you read through, the, and it's like, it's not the most uplifting book in the Bible. It's a little dark, it's a little morbid, it's a little depressing because of what it talks about. But um, the reality is that the Hebrew word, and this is, I think, a very like, interesting differentiating factor, the Hebrew word for meaningless that is translated in English as meaningless or in some versions, vanity, the word in and of itself doesn't actually mean meaningless. The teacher or the author of Ecclesiastes is creating a metaphor. So the actual word is the word hevel, which is smoke, vapor, smoke or vapor. So he's not saying that it's meaningless in and of itself, but the metaphor he's using is a metaphor of smoke 
and or vapor. And we'll get into a little bit more of why that's so significant as you read through the book. And again, it's one of the darker books in the Bible. It's not a super feel-good book. And it's a book that if you ever do read it for devotionals or, or for fun, um, I would highly recommend not stopping halfway through. You, gotta, you have to power through that book because if you stop halfway through, it will leave you with a very interesting view of what that book is about. Um, but I think especially when it comes to topics such as the meaning of life and the pursuit of pleasure and what it means to live a good life, the book of Ecclesiastes is it's perfect for that. It kind of hits those marks perfectly. And if it really is from the perspective of Solomon, right, a man who was on top of the world, had all the wisdom, the knowledge, and the wealth, and the means to do anything, it adds a little bit more of authority to what he wrote because of the life that he lived. And the book of Ecclesiastes, at its core, explores three basic facts of life that attribute to life being hevel, or like smoke, or like vapor. And the three attributes are this. The first is time. And I'm just going to read an excerpt um, from the first chapter. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. A few verses down. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new, but actually it is old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past. And in the future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. That's kind of his like opening line, that opening concept, right? Time. Time is endless. You do all these things. People do all these things. There are advancements, whatever. But at the end of the day, nothing truly changes. The mountains are still there. The, the waters still crash on the beach. And he goes on. The second attribute of life that makes life hevel is this concept of death. And this is what he says about death. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. So the second aspect of life that makes it hevel is you're all going to die, right? And so again, not, no, not the most sunshine butterfly of, of, of text. But the reality, I think when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's like pretty relatable. And it's true. Whether you're rich or poor, wise or foolish, everyone's going to die. Everyone has 24 hours in a day, and no one knows when your life ends, right? There's this ephemeralness to life, this, this non-lastingness to life. And the final thing he talks about, so it's time, death. And the third thing that he, he touches on, which is arguably the most disturbing, is this idea of the random nature of life, the idea of chance. And this is what he says. I have seen something under the sun. The race is not always to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or, or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. And the idea of that is there is this randomness to life, right? You can be wise, and you can be smart, and you can prepare, but at the end of the day, there's no guarantees, right? There's no guarantee that healthy people will have no health complications. There's no guarantee that wise people will be wealthy. There's no guarantee that wealthy people will be happy and that good things will happen because you do this. There is inherently chance in life, and you can prepare and do these things, but at the end of the day, who knows what tomorrow will bring? Who knows what your destiny will be? Who knows how your life will end? And then throughout the book, it also deals with all these activities and false hopes um, that we devote our lives to in order to find meaning. And he talks about careers or putting your life and meaning and wealth in social status and pleasure. And he says, look, I've seen, dash, done it all. And at the end of the day, it's all hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. 
And so when you look at the general topics that this book covers, you're tempted to think like, okay, well, if everything in life is hevel, if there's, it's all just chance, if, if, you know, I can be a good person and do good things, right? When you read the book of Proverbs, which is just before, and the Proverbs, the, the, the idea of Proverbs is, is if you're wise, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. And you read Ecclesiastes and you're like, ah, that's not necessarily the case. You're tempted to think like, well, if that's the case, like, should we all just become, like, relativists and hedonists and just do whatever? Because if nothing, if everything is hevel, then let's just do whatever. And then you're like, no, because even that would be hevel. Like, to be a relativist and a hedonist and just to live for pleasure, that's hevel as well. That's like a smoke that's elusive, and it's not really what it seems. And this paradox and this confusion, you get to truly appreciate that the author uses that word, hevel, to describe life. That it's like a smoke it's like a vapor and it's it's ephemeral it's not lasting and it seems solid but when you grab it it'll slip through your fingers and it's not always what it seems to be and there's a certain point in the book where the author talks about wisdom and essentially he's talking about what it means to live according to the proverbs that are previously talked about to live a good life to be wise to do good things and he says even wisdom even wisdom is hevel it's like a smoke it's like a vapor. And what he means there, and this is why I think the word meaningless isn't necessarily the most accurate, is because the word hevel doesn't necessarily mean meaningless. When you read the book, the author isn't actually saying that life has no meaning, but that the meaning of life, like smoke, is difficult to discern. It's paradoxical. It's not as straightforward or as black and white as you would like think. Similar to wisdom. Wisdom is hevel because just because you do good things doesn't guarantee that you'll live a good life. It's like hevel. Not that wisdom is meaningless, but that wisdom can be difficult to understand at times. And life doesn't always go according to your expectations. Which brings us to then, the natural question you ask is then, how do you live a life? How do you live in the midst of all this havel, in the midst of all this smoke? If life truly is like a smoke and like a vapor, and then like when you're in the, it's like when you're in fog, it, you you're get disoriented and you don't know what's up and down. How do you live in this life? What is the conclusion, right? You read this book and it's naturally like you don't know what to do. And surprisingly, the author of Ecclesiastes advocates that the best way to live life in the midst of all this, after all that I've said, now you're all going to die. Time affects us all. There's random nature to life. He says, just accept that life is hell. Accept that it's hell and that most, if not all of life, is out of your control. To a certain extent, most, if not all of life, is out of your control. And about six different times in the book, at around the darkest moments, um, he talks about this concept of the gift of God. And he describes things that are enjoying the simple pleasures of life. He talks about finding satisfaction in your work, enjoying a good meal, enjoying friendship, companionship, family. Um, and he talks about this phrase of, of how it pleases the eye to look at the sun, right? I feel like it's the equivalent of saying, like, enjoy the sun, enjoy good weather. And the reason for this, the reason he advocates just accepting Havel and enjoying the little things in life is because none of these things are guaranteed to you. So you should enjoy them while you can. Not because there's nothing more to life than that or because these things are the most important thing in life, but because when you adopt a position of trusting God and submitting to him, you're free to enjoy your life as you actually experience it, not as you think it ought to be. Because even your own expectations of life are Havel. Havel, everything is Havel. And this is actually how he ends this book. After saying that, 
right? Just accepting it. Throughout the, throughout the book, there are these little pockets of enjoying the little things in life and that wisdom is also Havel. This is how he ends the book. These are the final remarks of kind of like a commentary of the book. Now, all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will eventually bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commandments. And it's important to note that it's not to be frightened of God or to be afraid of God, but to simply allow God to actually be God in your life, the center of your life, what you, what, who you follow, who you lean on, and who, de who defines right and wrong. And he says, enjoy life not because you are God, but because you know God and you trust God. Because God, as he says, will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And that in acknowledging that you are not God, you can submit yourself to trusting God that he will one day come and get rid of all the havel in your life. Not losing hope, but to make you humble. The point of the book isn't to make you feel hopeless or that there's no point in all this, but to humble you and realize that life has meaning even when we can't make sense of it all. And that the march of time, the inevitability of death, and the random nature of life will one day no longer affect us. And it's interesting that in this book, in this teaching of what it means to actually live a good life, he talks about in the most like anticlimactic way, while you enjoy life at the end of the day, you're to fear God and follow his commandments. And when you look at it, you're tempted to think like, is this a typo? Like when you read the flow of the book of all this darkness and everything seems so meaningless, he ends by saying, fear God, follow his commandments. Allow God to actually be God in your life so that you can truly enjoy your life as it happens, not as you planned or you expected. And there's this interesting connection, especially in the New Testament, where the word for the word blessed, the Greek word for the word blessed is makarios, is blessed is actually the same word for the word happy. Happy and makarios, blessed, are three of the same words. And one of the places you find that very often is in Jesus' famous sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. That word makarios is the same as the word happy. Happy are those who are pure in heart. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this promise, this idea that God says, hey, the reason this book ends like this is because I'm ending with this promise that one day I will come back. And it will get rid of all the havel in your life. And that's not what only allows us to enjoy life as we live it, but also to have genuine joy and hope in our lives. Because true meaning in life can only come from something that is lasting and that is eternal. And the reason life can seem so meaningless and menial and ephemeral is because so much of life is not lasting. So much of life is temporary. But true meaning can only come from something that is lasting and eternal. And that's why a book as bleak, and as dark as Ecclesiastes can end by saying, hey, taking everything into consideration, everything that I've just said, the best way forward is still live a life of integrity and character by placing God as the king of your life. And what God promises, what Christianity promises, what, what the word of God promises, what, what following Jesus promises is that our reason for hope and joy is rooted in a promise that was made and kept within the pages of scripture. That God promised to get the rid, God promised to rid the world of sin and havel. He came down and he did so by sacrificing his own life, and that he promises to come back again to restore us in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, this concept of this teaching of, of Ecclesiastes can seem almost paradoxical. And, and I think it's it's honestly so genius that that's the word 
that, that your author used to talk about life, Havel, that it's like a smoke, like a vapor, like a breath. It's, life can seem like that in so many instances, God. So much of life is, is confusing, is fleeting, is temporary, God, and it's hard for us to figure out where to put our hope and trust and, and our joy and where to find true meaning in life, God. Um, and at the end of the day, God, it's, it's definitely easier said than done to look at all of life and the distractions and the confusion and simply think that we should fear God and keep your commands, God. And it's much easier to get lost and wallow in, in the hopelessness and the doubt, and the confusion that life has to offer. And, and just to take the reins ourselves and be like, we'll figure it out. We'll be our own gods. And, and we, we don't need to fear you because we'll just live life for ourselves, God. It's much easier to do that. But you remind us time and time again through scripture and through your patience with your people that you truly have our best intentions in mind and that you are God that at the end of the day will always keep his promises and the promises that you've made to us that you're coming back for us, God, that there is hope and joy in you and your promises, what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do. I praise in your son Jesus' name. Amen.